Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us is Waj Ali. He's a journalist, a writer, a lawyer, an award-winning playwright. I, I love his stuff on Twitter. So, <laughs> And I've read his articles. I like those too. And I don't say that too often because as a writer myself, I always think I'm the best. So, Waj, thanks for joining us here today. I'm glad I, to have I, you. I appreciate it. I think I have to Venmo you some money for that introduction. Uh, <laughs> my, my wife will probably hear that and be like, who's this badass that I allegedly married? And how come he doesn't show up? How long uh, have you been married? I've been, we're on year nine. We're going to get to year nine, hopefully by the end of the summer. So uh, by next year, yeah, by next year will be a, de- a decade. And we were talking about this earlier. Uh, like you, I married way up. So my wife is much smarter, much better looking uh, and has much more talent. And I'm an only child. And just to show you how cruel and blunt immigrant parents can be, uh, despite being an only child, my parents every week remind me, Beta, she's better than you. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. They're like, they're like you, you aren't getting better. You are not going to get better. Don't mess this up, son. You, you, you've met my parents, I take it. <laughs> like, they're like, we love you. You're our only child, but we like her more. Yeah. And you'll do better than you. You yeah. won't do better than this. That's my mom and dad all the time. <laughs> you know, we really like her. You, I don't know about, but <laughs> well, you know, it's lucky, right? Like we, I always tell people, like if your in-laws, if you get along with your in-laws and if your parents like your wife, man, that's like, that's like you've that's just like, like the Powerball lotto. Yeah. It's better than the Powerball. It lasts longer. So, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with Lodge. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And with us today, as his wife will attest, is a badass journalist, writer, lawyer, <laughs> award-winning playwright, <laughs> Waj Ali. And Waj, I brought you here because I, I've read some of the things that you've written, and you, I've seen some of the things that you've tweeted. But I wanted to talk about a, a, something that's really near and dear to my heart, and that's uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And what our initial response was in the United States and what our response continues to be. So I'll just ask you the question first, since that's the title of the program. What do you think of what the United States has done in response to his killing? Do you think it's adequate? Absolutely not. It's shameful. Jamal Khashoggi was a U.S. resident and a colleague, a Washington Post reporter, exceedingly respected, and a man who loved Saudi Arabia, right? Uh, People forget that. I mean, he really, I think if you look at the documentary, if you look at his writings, uh, he's a man who, you know, was, I think, an apologist for the Saudi government uh, out of love and loyalty. But uh, over the years, saw the shift and decided that, you know, the regime had to change and became a critic, but still, still very loyal, still a person who who critiqued out of love. And he realized, you know, uh, I can't go back. Uh, even though I have family there, he has children there. He said, okay, now United States is my home. And uh, he was going to get remarried. And, and upon the assurances, right, of the relationships that he had with uh, the Saudi government and specifically embassy, when he was in Turkey, he said, okay, I'm going to go into the Saudi embassy in Turkey. And I've been given assurances that I'll be safe to get the necessary uh, documents so that I can marry my fiance. And so he enters based on that trust. And what happens is that there was a plot and the direct order was given by Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, to kidnap and kill Jamal. And what they did is that they sent like a a group of thugs that uh, restrained him, choked him, killed him, and then used a bone saw to dismember a U.S. resident, a U.S. journalist. And then if you remember, Brian, people forget this. Um, They had someone dress up like Jamal and leave the embassy, right? 
And it was such a cluster F of an operation that they came up with two or three different stories within a week, each one more ludicrous than the rest, because they had bungled up the, the, the getaway plan, if you will. And, you know, uh, Turkish intelligence and video surveillance had all the just the, the harrowing uh, evidence of his murder. Uh, you, you could literally hear him die. And just recently, um, the Biden administration declassified the intelligence report, which showed what we all knew all along for the past three years, that <laughs> Mohammed bin Salman ordered the, the, the murder uh, of Jamal, lied about it, covered it up. And Biden administration, if you remember, he prom- he kind of campaigned on a tough love message against Saudi Arabia. Yes. Right? People forget that. And we have to be critical here. And lo and behold, once a declassified report came out last week, what happened? Business as usual. Because, and we knew that. Anyone who's been following they the They gave Middle them a free pass. They free pass. They gave a free pass. This time, you know, hey, free pass. Next time, we're going to hold your... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next time when you kill and dismember one of our residents and a journalist and lie about it and it becomes an international controversy. Uh, and by the way, when you're being a brutal authoritarian and cracking down on women's rights and have a and leading a country with no independent judiciary. And by the way, are doling out money uh, to sycophants and Republicans, Democrats alike in Washington, D.C., who will yep. be your lobbying arm. And by the way, when you come and tour this country and every single titan of every industry from tech to Hollywood tries to grovel at your feet because you throw millions of dollars uh, at this country, uh, maybe then we'll do something. But for now, okay, okay, you get one, you get one U.S. journalist dismemberment pass. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then you, you, you think about this, what does it say about the rest of us, right? Like, l- let me put it this way, Brian. God forbid, <laughs> if, you, if you and I were in this situation and suppose we go out, and you know the, the climate right now, in the last five years, uh, internationally, and especially in the United States of America, and you know this better than anyone, under the Trump administration, the U.S. joins uh, other countries as being one of the most dangerous places for journalists. Yes. Uh, the rise of assaults and death threats, and you know, in some cases in other countries, literally imprisonment and murder. Suppose you and I go to another country. Suppose we write critically about it. Suppose we write critically about, I don't know, Saudi Arabia. And suppose you and I are in Saudi Arabia. And suppose the same thing happens to us. Will our government have our back or... Does Saudi, oh, Arabia, yeah, does Saudi Arabia get to play blood money? And basically, whether it's a Democrat like Biden or if it's a Trump administration, they say, you know what? Due to geopolitical concerns and due to oil We're and due to pass. Israel, we'll give it another pass. And that's something I want really, people to really think about. Like, what happens if it's one of us? How much is our life worth? Well, it, it, my, my question is not if it's one of us, because I know damn well if Trump were president and it happened to me, uh, Trump would probably pay to have me put down absolutely tribute to it but um and i think biden will turn a a blind eye to it but what is of greater concern to me is is i look at it often as the way i look at uh people who murder police Mm. if you're willing to murder a journalist and all that entails because you can't do that in the dark it becomes public knowledge if you're willing to take that on and to do it and have the chutzpah to do it, what does that mean that you're doing to the ordinary citizens who do not have the protection that you and I have? Obviously, it's got to be worse for the people in Saudi Arabia than what we're experiencing. I mean, to me, it is that, that the, that's the bottom line to me. It's got to be worse for the average citizen. It's, it is worse for the average citizen. And I remember a few years ago when Mohammed bin Salman was rising, you had the pundit class of DC and New York that you and I know were saying absurd things like he's going to be a reformer. Yeah. He's going to be a modernist. And the rest of us who know something about the Middle East and history, were like, what are you smoking? Yeah. Uh, right. And, but, but because people of, wouldn't listen to me though, then yeah, they wouldn't listen. And we had people like Thomas Friedman and others who's, you know, that infamous call in the New York times, give him a chance. And we're like, this is a man who, uh, has ruled with an, uh, uh, with an iron fist and a bullet. This is a man who in the last three years, as he was promoting reform, uh, he has jailed and tortured and abused the women's rights activists, like such as Lujain uh, Al-Hathlul and other women, as he was saying, oh, look, look at these reforms I've done. I, I've, I've ended the ban on driving and I'm giving women more rights. But by the way, the women in my own country who have been peacefully advocating this for the last you know, several years, I'm going to arrest them. 
detain them, torture them for three years, trump up charges against them. And because I dole out enough money, um, you're going to give me a free pass. You're going to give me a free pass. There's no independent press. There's no independent judiciary. I'm going to give oh. it a free pass. I'm going to meet with Jared Kushner and I'm going to brag to everyone. And everyone forgets this. He said, I have Kushner coat in my back pocket. Yeah. Remember that? Kushner, yeah. Kushner went well. to MBS. He traveled. That was the first meeting he did. Everyone was concerned because Kushner, people forget that Jared Kushner was denied a security clearance. People forget that. And why was he denied a security clearance? Because people were really, our security agencies were really troubled by uh, the type of associations he had. And also the fact that due to his finances and financial relationships that he could be manipulated and used and abused, right? Yeah. Trump, Trump overrode those uh, concerns, gave him a clearance anyway. Kushner and MBS of Saudi Arabia used to have WhatsApp conversations. And, and, and yeah. our intelligence agencies were like, why the hell is Kushner having such a cozy relationship to MBS, who's bragging to everyone that I got this guy in my back pocket. And lo and behold, what was the first foreign trip of the Trump administration after he was elected? Oh, let's think. Uh, uh, Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia. <laughs> oh, what a coincidence. Where Steve Bannon, an Islamophobe, is dancing to swords and yeah. Trump, is, <laughs> Trump is doing a curtsy and they're giving him a golden necklace. And like How I always that joke, orb thing where they're holding the, the, yeah, the orb, the orb, right? <laughs> they're all, they're all holding, touching the orb. And you know, that, that was also another concern is that it's, it's so easy for Trump who was so, uh, uh, you know, you can manipulate him. If you're a foreign leader, you just have to compliment him, flatter him and give him money, money give him yeah. money. And that's what the Saudis is. People forget that Saudis deliberately courted Trump by spending millions of dollars at his properties. And voila. Here in the United States and in DC. They voila. kept business. Yeah. yeah. My, well, I wanna go farther with what you, what you said about MBS and you know, people thought he was a reformer. Having spent some time in Saudi Arabia myself, mm. I don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you know better. I don't know if it's possible to have real reform from within the Saudi royal family. I don't see any of them that are real reformers. It's the way the system is built. It's the mm -hmm. power that they control. And you're not going to get someone to, that's born into that to voluntarily give it up. Yeah. Uh, what reform? Oh, it's like yeah. a, it's, it's, it's a royal family. It's like a monarchy. It's like a dictatorship. Like if you speak like out against them. To me, it's like the New York mob. Yeah, it it's, is. I mean, I mean, you speak out against MBS, you're done. Uh, if you're a peaceful women's right activist, charges are trumped up uh doesn't matter that there's international outrage they'll lock you up and then just two weeks ago to make himself look better uh he just released these activists right yeah. uh where is the independent judiciary where is the independent uh clergy where is the independent press uh you know where there is, is it? it it doesn't exist it doesn't exist and let's what? not forget that mbs consolidated his power by literally kidnapping 200 family members shaking them down for money releasing them only after they literally like pledged allegiance to him right yeah, yeah. that was done after the blessing of jared kushner jared kushner leaves after that meeting and voila after he leaves uh and you know there's been reporting upon this that apparently kushner knew what he was going to do gave him the green light he did it because he said there's going to be no blow black from the trump administration so here's mbs consolidating all his power trying to making these trying to make these aggressive moves there's even all, that the, was the blowback there was yeah. even that uh, the same critique and the criticism was issued on Kushner after Jamal Khashoggi's death that, that uh, Jared gave him, you know, may the green light, the blessing, yeah, the green light, the blessing. Go ahead. You have my blessing, my son. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, uh, and, and, and people say, okay, you and Brian are, are just obviously biased against Trump and you're just saying that, but let's, I, I keep receipts. After all the intelligence came out, after our own CIA said that he was responsible, after the Turkish intelligence said it was responsible, after any sane person looked at about, looked at the cluster F of the Saudi murder and cover up of Jamal Khashoggi, what did Donald Trump do? He Nothing. sided with MBS. Yeah, and he said, in fact, that there was nothing. He said, well, you can look at the uh, uh, intelligence and you might think that he did it, but I look at the intelligence, it could have been somebody else, could have been China. Could have been China. It's same thing he did with the Russian interference in our elections, right? And yeah. so he deliberately said it with MBS. He he uh, applauded his strong rule. He said that, you know, he's good for business. He said that he's good for the arms sale. The arms sales, the arms sale that he kept touting, yeah. right? Uh, that never really amounted to the money that he said it would bring. 
And essentially what he was saying was, if it's good business, I don't care if he kills a U.S. journalist. And that's why I want to get back to that, that under the Trump yes. administration, the way that administration responded to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the way that he kept touting the business deals, the way that he kept dismissing intelligence, the way he didn't even say anything nice about Jamal Khashoggi, but actually demeaned him. And let's not forget the right-wing media then smeared him as a Muslim Brotherhood uh, radical as an apologist. Activist. Yeah, as an activist, right? Uh, for the rest of us, and I, I think especially for you, Brian, because I observed you getting hazed by Gorka and all these others, you know, it was just like, and especially me as a Muslim, I'm like, hmm, in this administration, if I am to travel to Saudi Arabia, and I've been critical of Saudi Arabia, and if God forbid something happens to me, will my president have my back? No. 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 And well, and as far as being Muslim, I had an, I had a, and, and I'm not, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a Lebanese Catholic, Marianite Catholic, and, uh, you know, well, or former, or cafeteria Catholic, or I don't really <laughs> give a shit about religion Catholic, but however you want to describe yeah, I got it. I, I like the, I like the cafeteria Catholic. You... So, yeah, whatever is convenient, I'll take <laughs> yeah. the cafeteria. So I'm in the uh, Trump White House one day, and, and someone who shall remain nameless asked me what my last name was, and how you pronounce it, I said, it's Karim, and they go, what kind of last name is that? And I said, well, it's a last name, you know, it comes after my first name. And they said, yeah, but, but what is it? Always trying to hint around. I knew what they were hitting around. At. Yeah. And I, I said, well, you know, what's your last name? Like Smith or whatever. And, and they go, well, I said, so what kind of name is that? And she goes, well, that's a, that's a regular name. That's an American go, name. Oh, yeah, yeah. Karim yeah. isn't. So the assumption was, and then they, I, I had them ask, you know, I had people ask me, so are, 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 you, uh, are, are you, you know, Muslim? Is, is it, are you? And I said, you have a guy named Scott Karim who's on your freaking staff. Yeah. Why don't you ask him what Karim is? Why are you asking me? And let's, he was the body man for Trump. I think that the, I, I know that it, there was a lot of, of racism, misogyny in the white, in, in the white house during Trump. But what bothered me was like when he went on Chuck Todd's show and to your point said, look, it's all about the money. And that's what he, I mean, he said it point blank. So we, we understood where Trump was. He's a racist. He's a misogynist. He's an Islamophobe. He, you know, and when people find out that I have, you know, relatives that are Muslim, they go, how, how do you not, do you all fight? And I'm going, well, only over the raw beef, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe over the baklava, but you know, yeah. otherwise, you know, no, but you know, it's a family. So I, I understand how they are, but I expected more out of Biden because he said that uh, they, he would treat him as a pariah state and he gave them a free pass. Yeah, I mean, basically he said, no, we're not giving them a free pass. Look, we, we, we released a declassified intelligence. Now people know, and we were critical of them. And now we have, uh, we've banned some people from coming, but they haven't banned MBS. And the reason right. I think it's important for those who don't know, the reason why uh, both administrations, and I, I would go back to even Obama, uh, have made this kind of Faustian bargain with uh, Saudi Arabia and other dictatorships is they're bad, but they're better than the other guy. And they're good for our interests. And specifically their interests are twofold right now. I would say threefold. Number one, it's oil. Yes, people say we don't rely upon Saudi Arabia for as much oil as we uh, used to, but still it's lucrative. We rely upon them and we wanna make sure that we have the best uh, deal with uh, our old faithful partners, right? Number one. Number two, in a regional war that's happening right now, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, United States is siding with Saudi Arabia. And specifically, they're deeply concerned about Iran and its aggression um, in the region, right? And you see this happening uh, around the, the war that's been going on for nearly, what, now five years in Yemen, a humanitarian crisis where CNN just said, famine has arrived in Yemen. Uh, it's been there for a while. Well, it didn't arrive. <laughs> yeah. It took residence there a decade ago. Yeah, exactly. But like, you know, this is something, and we have to be fair, that you can, you can also blame the uh, Obama administration. I've talked to uh, alumni of the Obama Absolutely. administration, and they say, you know, one of our major regrets is how we dealt with Yemen. Because the Obama administration, in this war, basically this proxy war, right, where it's between Saudi Arabia and Iran, but over Yemen, where Iran is supporting the Houthi rebels, and Saudi Arabia is uh, supporting the quote-unquote, formal government uh, of Yemen, which is operating outside of Yemen right now. Uh, Obama said, okay, we're going to support and tilt our, um, our hedge our bets with Saudi Arabia. So they offered uh, Saudi Arabia 
an arms deal worth more than $115 billion, more than any other U.S. administration in the history of U.S.-Saudi relations. And that right? almost paid enough for the, uh, uh, I think the bomber. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But almost. later, almost. But later they said later, oh no! But we restricted certain certain arms, like pre right. you know, precision guided munitions. But the civilian civilian casualties, the cost and consequences of this support, is felt by the Yemeni people. And I want to again tell people that it's a humanitarian crisis. There's been a cholera outbreak. Yes, there's there famine. The the people of Yemen and Yemen is already a poor country. Um, have been devastated by this war. And Obama tilted his hand towards Saudi Arabia. Trump went all in for Saudi Arabia. Well, and now he was in their pants. Yeah, literally. And now Biden administration has done a calculation and said, okay, this relationship that we've cultivated since 1945, ever since FDR courted uh, Abdul uh, Aziz uh, bin Saud on the USS Quincy uh, for oil, which he successfully courted him, uh, we have to maintain this uh, lucrative relationship with a brutal and ugly ally, but and it's ultimately worth it for us. So Jamal, sucks to be you. I'm sorry, but MBS, yeah. let's still do business. And the third reason, you said there were three. That was your second. Uh, and, 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 the, and the third reason was uh, Israel. And specifically, yeah. uh, Donald Trump uh, mentioned that as well, is that Saudi Arabia, they see as becoming more pro-Israel, which is an interest of U.S. policy and U.S.-Israel uh, relationships, and specifically adds a buffer against what they say are the hostile forces against Israel. So, uh, and Trump admitted, he said, you know, yeah. he's pro-Israel, good business and regional security, and voila, there you go, that's enough. I want, you know, the thing that bothers me about it all, if you look at history, in 1953, we're, we're now backing Saudi Arabia against Iran. Until 1953, Iran had a democracy. That's right. The CIA overturned and started the fall of that democracy because they didn't like how they were going to uh, nationalize the oil industry. And That's so right. Right. we came in, started the war, and, <clears throat> and put the wonderful Shah of Iran <laughs> And no, that was but I'm so happy you mentioned that, right? Because in the absence of that massive historical fact, what we have is the following. I'm just, I mean, as a Muslim, I'll tell you, this is what people say. 1979, Ayatollah Khomeini, Islamic extremism. They, they, they uh, kidnapped... All our fault. Uh, oh, yeah. They kidnapped uh, those Americans, kept them uh, hostage for, you know, over 400 days, 444 days. They hate us. They hate us for our freedoms. They hate us for our liberties. No. Iranians remember that they had a democracy where their leader, Mossadegh, tried to nationalize their greatest asset, oil. And the United States helped in a coup called Operation Ajax overthrow yes. him and replace him with a brutal, uh, opulent uh, dictator, the Shah. Who so then, we could get cheap oil. Yeah, so we could get cheap oil. And he you know, used and abused all their resources, uh, was an ally of the U.S., literally flew to the U.S., and had Savic, which is kind of his personal army that cracked down uh, on any dissident. And after a while, Iranians were like, when we see the Shah, we see his ally and supporter of the United States. And I think in the absence of that really important historical connection, um, we lead to a point where, you know, MAGA, the right wing, even the left wing, right? They're like, oh, the Middle East hates us. Islam hates us. And one thing I'll say here, they did a poll, Gallup did a poll in 2009 of a billion Muslims. It was a massive project. And they said, what do you dislike most about America? This is what people said. We dislike the hypocrisy of, for, of US foreign policy and how it is contrasted to US values. The second thing they said is we dislike the representation of Islam and Muslims in US media. They said, what do you like about the United States? We love your freedoms. We love yeah. democracy. We love the fact that you invest in education. We love the fact that you invest in uh, technology. So they actually love Ameri uh, our, American, Americans, our democracy, but they are the living, if you will, reminders of the hypocrisy of U.S. policy, case in point, Biden administration, where we'll say, well, oh, you MBS, you're terrible for killing Jamal Khashoggi, but business as usual. Yeah. <clears throat> and on that thought, let's take a short break. <laughs> Good. You, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> With that, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back.
Well, time to pay the bills, folks. And this one I, I don't mind doing. If <laughs> Actually, I've actually used this. If this 2020 holiday season feels like it's been a long time, come and make it worth the wait with Omaha Steaks. Omaha Steaks makes the perfect gift for family and friends or to treat yourself. All shipped directly to your door. They offer everything you need to bring families together for a delicious holiday feast. Okay, or maybe not. Maybe just a delicious festival. Uh, their deluxe grillers assortment package includes a variety of entrees, sides, and desserts. Right now, you can get this mouth-watering package. I, I've never actually seen a mouth water. Oh, well, anyway, plus four free burgers and a free digital meat thermometer. And we all need a good meat thermometer. And exclusive price only available to uh, our listeners. So go to omahasteaks.com and enter the code question into the search bar. Get a jump on gift shopping with Omaha Steaks. You know, Omaha Steaks isn't just a steak. It, it's actually a, a lot of them. It's a fantastic gift and a safe way to share the joy of the season with Omaha Steaks. Guaranteed quality and safety with every order. Order the Deluxe Grillers Assortment Package today, and you'll receive four free Omaha Steak Burgers and a free digital meat thermometer. That's just a great straight line I won't use. When you go to omahasteaks.com and type question in the search bar, that's omahasteaks.com and type question. And if you need to spell it, it's Q-U-E-S-T-I-O-N in the search bar. And you'll shop for the best gourmet gifts of the season I, I like a good raw steak, so uh, enjoy it. It is a lot of fun. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. With me is Waj Ali. And Waj, I, we talked in the break a little bit. <clears throat> you have a book coming out in January. What's it about? Well, I hope it comes out in January, February. That's the aim. The book title is called Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. <laughs> and <laughs> that's the title. Yeah, that's a great title. Thank you. And 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 my you know my publisher Norton's like yeah keep that title. And you know the best way I could explain is it's an elegy for the rest of us. It explains the last twenty years, specifically post uh, 9-11 America, through the lens of uh, a very personal story uh, of a community that was ostracized and told to go back to where you came from and not seen as an American based on our last name or a skin tone or ethnicity. And, and, and I, I, I'm trying to tell a story of America, but through a very culturally specific personal lens. And so it's a good it, idea. It took me a while to crack it, but I went all in, right? So it's not, it's memoir-ish, but it's not really a memoir. And so the title it allows me to create kind of like a self-help memoir, like how to become an American, number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, yeah. eight, nine, ten. But it's my personal story, and I'm kind of your Virgil uh, of the last 30, 40 years of America, trying wow. to connect the dots uh, of how the rest of us have survived and lived through America, how the rest of us experienced pre-9-11, post-9-11, the war on terror, Obama, Trump. And I think that perspective right now, I'm hoping more people are open to it, especially as we're getting towards the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I mean, it's just shocking, right? Like it's- yeah. Kind of, well, what, what shocks me is I remember after 9-11, there were people telling me to, you know, go back to your country. I'm going, yeah. but but I don't want to go back to Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go back to Louisville. <laughs> no, but I get I, I get told that every day. I said, go back to where you came yeah. from. Go, go back, back to I'm where like, you came from. I'm going, but, but Kentucky's full. I, yeah. It's got Mitch yeah. McConnell. I don't want to be there. I always tell people, if you can subsidize my rent in the Bay Area, I will gladly move back because uh, <laughs> I can't afford it. So yeah. if you can pay for my mortgage in for a barrier home where I, I was born and raised, sure. And then also people so you're laugh first at generation. You're first. Yeah, I'm first generation. My parents came here as a result of the 1965 Immigration Nationality Act, which removed the restrictive quotas that were placed upon people of color, uh, Irish Catholics, Eastern European Jews, that, that immigration act that was placed in the early 1920s. Yeah. In the early 1920s, those invaders weren't MS-13 or undocumented immigrants. They wanted to get rid of Irish Catholics and Jews. Yeah, uh, and and and, 19- and us Lebanese folk too. They yep. my, my great uh, grand. Well, I'm second generation. When my grandfather came over, they had to come over a couple of times because they got turned back. <laughs> yeah, and and so this, you know, when it comes to Arab Americans, Arab Americans have deep roots, and so you see a shift in Arab Americans. You'll see the ones who came here before, like 1921, 1924, before that Immigration Act, right. and then there was that. 40 years where none of us could come. And yeah. then you see, you see that second wave. 
And so you see these deep roots, especially of Arab Americans, especially Syrian, Syrian and Lebanese Americans who have been here for a long, since the 19th century. Right. Um, and my father's generation, you'll see a lot of South Asians who were able to come to this country after 1965 because uh, discriminating against national origin became uh, illegal, right? But you see these patterns, right? And so my dad was born and raised in Pakistan. He did not quote unquote hate America. He was an 18 year old. And once he saw the 1965 Immigration Nationality Act, he goes, yo, I just graduated, you know, my version of high school. Hey, Sultan uncle, my older brother, let's go to America and let's go get an education and let's work three jobs and let's pool together and let's find other brown people. And we have a dream. Because yeah, we have a dream. And we've heard in America, you can make something out of yourself. We've heard in America that doesn't matter about your skin tone and your religion. We've heard in America that isn't perfect, sure, but we have a shot. We have a chance at becoming something greater than ourselves in America. So imagine an 18-year-old and a 19-year-old literally leaving behind their family, everything they know, their country, and crossing thousands of miles across the Atlantic to go to a country based on a dream and a promise. That was and my I, grandfather. Yeah. And there's something really powerful about that, that I think we have to and if really- you look at it, honestly, I covered bo the border, uh, the Southern border for many years. And I, what angers me is when I hear people say, you know, they're lazy and they want to take, and they want to take all our jobs. I, I don't know how you can be both at the same time. Either you're lazy and you don't want to work and live on welfare, or you're working your butt off and you, and you want a job. But most, yeah. most of the people I've interviewed that have struggled to get here and have come over legally or as undocumented workers illegally, every single one of them will work their ass off just to get what brought your parents and my grandparents to this country, the chance for the American dream. And they're more American than anybody I've ever met. And you, you mentioned it, right? We become so flattened and essentialized that we live in two extremes. Either we are a charge, a drain on the welfare system, lazy, taking away all of the government's wealth, or we are so industrious and so supernaturally talented with our hard work that we're taking away everyone else's jobs. It doesn't matter. So that's the thing is when you become so flattened and demonized, you can be casually cast as the villain of the day. So you can be an invader. You could be the Kung flu. You can be a terrorist. You can be a rapist. You can be a public drain. You can be the reason why uh, the white kids aren't getting into Yale. It doesn't matter. Uh, and so this kind of story, and I try to connect the dots. I said, this story is a story that has historical resonance in America because of white supremacy. And unless you really talk about white supremacy, connect the dots like we've been trying to do uh, in, in this conversation and dismantle it, this story will keep on, it'll be a remake. And, and you know, post 9-11 it was Muslims and the last eight months has been Asian Americans. Uh, ever since Donald Trump last March- yeah, decided Kung to, Flu. Kung Flu, double down on it, just did it's it yesterday. It's China virus. China, it's a China virus. China virus. And I would try to correct him in the press briefings and he would have none of it. Remember, it, I think it was yesterday, right? It was yesterday or two days ago where since the fool doesn't have Twitter, he released a press release. And in yes. the press release where he tried to take credit for Biden's success, he still went called back it, and said yeah. the China virus. He goes, by the way, it's called the China virus. China virus. Yeah. And, you know, and I read his press releases today and I just go, God damn, if... if I remember high school journalism, you'd fail for that. <laughs> there's the run on sentences, there's misspellings, there's no paragraphs, mixed tenses, and, and the proclamations that come out of them. And you just go, man, I'm, I'm putting myself as an executive editor of a community newspaper again, going, we're not printing that shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like someone, like has to be someone there. Like it was like, yo, I, I, I'm trying to save you from yourself. But it also goes to show you that the, for the cult, it doesn't matter, right? It just doesn't matter. The bars well, think, are so low. I, I think the cult um, will slowly dissipate as mm. he has, um, as Biden kind of brings things back to normal. I mean, I look, I, I, and as he has, as his um, his appearances in public have begun to diminish. We don't cover everything he does every day, twenty four seven. The 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 core of his supporters will always be out there, 30 or 40 million of them. And that's all he really wants. If he can get, you know, 20 bucks a month out of them, he'll, he'll have a way to pay his bills until he 
goes to jail or, you know, they call his notes due. Um, but I, I don't think that it will be an overwhelming number. What I worry about are who's going to step into his place and take that's right. that base that's smarter, yeah. uh, more savvy of, yeah. and, and, and just, you know, smoother. I'm, I'm absolutely with you. I, I get heat. I remember I did a tweet a couple of weeks ago and, and so many people I forget are so traumatized by the Trump administration that they said, I said something like this. I said, uh, once uh, on Twitter, MAGA was crowing about Trump being Teflon. This was a, right after he was, uh, right. the impeachment, the vote came out, right? And he wasn't convicted. And I said, in response to this, Trump is Teflon, oh, this and that. I'm like, okay, if he runs again in 2024, fine. He'll be weakened, he'll be diminished, he'll be older. Uh, compared to uh, Biden, uh, his failures will be magnified. And, and, and Democrats will whip his ass. And all these people are like, how dare you say that? You shouldn't even wish that. What, you, you didn't learn the first time. And I was like, you guys oh, are yeah, misleading yeah. me. I'm saying is that you are overestimating his power. I think yes. he will weaken. And he doesn't have Twitter. He's no longer the president. He's no longer the top dog. He'll be older. Biden will succeed. He'll reopen the country. I think Trump will diminish. What I've always said and I, and I want to just echo what you just said. I've said this on uh, cable news for like four years. I worry about Trumpism. And I worry yes. about the person who is less self-destructive, a little bit more polished, a woman perhaps, who gives it a softer touch, who takes the same Trumpism virus and ideology and then carries it to the mainstream. That, I think, is our main concern. The Republican Party will get more extreme, more radical. They'll weaponize. They're not moderating at all. And who can take the, 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 the baton and finesse that message in such a way they can win over just enough people with voter suppression and become president again and be the friendly fascist? My role, yeah, I don't think there'll be any friendly about the fascism. I think the fascism is here. And I think, the, their, I think their path right now towards that is not to find a friendlier face for the fascism, mm. but... I think gerrymandering districts and uh, legislation aimed at voter suppression so right. that the angry white people can stay in office. I think they're, that's the tools they're employing now. I don't personally, I don't think Trump will ever run again. I think that's a grift, a dodge, a, a con. I think yeah. he wants to make you think he's going to run again so he can keep getting money. And I think, as you said, the, the greater fear is who will take over that mantle with a smile, with a smile on their face. But right now, since they don't have that person, right. what they're trying to do is through gerrymandering and legislation, hold on <clears throat> to the seats that they're bound to lose. You already have five people dropping out of the Senate from the GOP. They've right. already lost the Senate and the House. Uh, so it, it, in 2022, they could be facing a real reckoning unless they're able to gerrymander a few districts and engage in voter suppression. So what happened in Georgia doesn't happen again. And there's been, and to echo that, there's been more than 250 bills that have been introduced by Republicans blatantly and openly to suppress votes. They're no longer even hiding it. Like in Arizona, they're admitting it. They're like, ah, we don't want some people to vote because they realize they don't want a repeat of what happened in Arizona, in Georgia. They don't want Texas to ever be competitive. They don't want Florida to have a chance. And with gerrymandering, with voter suppression, with cheating, with disinformation, and with history on their side where the leading... Um, you know, whoever's in, in charge of the White House, usually midterms are a bloodbath for, blood for them. I'm so worried about what's going to happen in 2022. My hope is, and this is the hope, absent weakening or ending the filibuster, is it enough for Biden and Democrats to go to the American public and say, I got you checks and I reopened America and I got you vaccinated? Because that's basically what he's going to have, right? That's, that's his pillars. And maybe, oh. maybe he can push through infrastructure uh well that would be nice it'd be nice to drive on a bridge that isn't going to collapse but yeah. if the if the midterms were today you would be right but the mindset of the american populace of the voting public is so short-sighted that's my fear is that they may well forget in 2022 what this president has done because let's face it donald trump could have and would have been reelected had it not been for how bad he fucked up that's the right. pandemic. That's right. And that was just in the last, I mean, the last six weeks, I asked him as he was <clears throat> being crept up on in the polls. So that was in September when I asked him about win, lose, or draw, would he agree to a, 
a peaceful transfer of power. From those last six weeks, that's when he really, that's when people woke up and he fell apart. Yeah, and I think that people also forget is that like what, like 8 million more people voted for him this time? Yeah. Oh, no, it was actually 10, 10 million 10 more million. people voted for him. Uh, 70, he got 73 uh, million votes. And if it wasn't for his complete colossal F up of the pandemic, which killed so many people and the recession, he would have won. And so I, yeah. I, I do worry because the Democrats are notoriously bad at messaging. And uh, yes, one, I, party I, is the par- one party is the party of no head and the other one is a party of no heart. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I always joke that like Democrats bring a policy paper to a knife fight and Mitch McConnell brings a bazooka and kills everyone, including yeah. Republicans, right? Yeah, well, he, well, Mitch McConnell don't care about nobody but Mitch McConnell. That's the right. bottom line with that. And, and also Elaine Chao, his wife, who, by the way, people are forgetting this blockbuster report came out that it's accusing her of massive grifting. Yeah, literally, yeah. literally used and abused her position as uh, the transportation uh, 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 head during the uh, Trump administration to profit her family. Uh, Why not? (laughs) Why not? And like people have just forgotten, but like, you know, that's my concern is, 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 and I said this on Twitter and people were like, you're saying, oh, watch, you're you're just being so simplistic. I'm like from right now to the midterms, every single day, Democrats have to remind Americans that Joe Biden reopened America and got them checks. Yeah. Every single day, because we're in 2021. And we're still talking about Benghazi and Clinton's emails. And I tip my hat to Republicans because they're very good at creating a simple message, repeating it ad nauseum, drilling it down, and using it to haunt Democrats forever. And then it leaks out into the mainstream. Yes. Both sides media does this ridiculous asymmetrical type of uh, uh, evaluation. And voila, a lot of Americans are like, but Clinton's emails. But yeah, uh, but, yeah. yeah. but Benghazi, <laughs> Benghazi. Oh my God, Benghazi! Before yeah. we go, to, well, two things before we go to the next break. One is an issue I think they've been excellent on that is the southern border and immigration. Right. Uh, you still have reporters in that briefing room asking about the crisis, and you have Biden denying there is one. And the real issue, having um, having been there for many years and covering it, is that. The crisis was in the 80s when the Mexican oil economy collapsed and the peso was devalued and suddenly you had tons and tons of an influx. It's been status quo since then. It's been a problem. It's Mm -hmm. not been a crisis. Donald Trump tried to manufacture a crisis and he still got people reacting to the manufacturing of an event that didn't occur. There aren't these bands of people waiting, you know, to come across, woo, let's go, you know, like these wandering troops of people spontaneously erupt and move across the border. So he's been very good and the GOP has been very good about manipulating that issue. Um, Absolutely. And and also let's not forget that he manufactured and created an emergency, uh, literally issued an emergency over yes. a non-emergency and was able to divert funds, important to funds. To a non-emergency. Yeah, to a non-emergency to build a stupid wall that never got built. And, uh, and if you and look never at his- could be built. Yeah, it's impossible. And then, and, and if you're looking at historically, uh, the, the amount of quote-unquote invasion that they talk about is actually at a low. It's um, the low, that's what yeah. I brought up in the, in the, I remember bringing that up in a uh, presidential news conference in Rose Garden and he got pissed off, told me to well, sit down. Oh, he told you he didn't even respond to it? He didn't want to respond to the fact that I said, look, there's the numbers are lower now. And he goes, well, you have, you know, have numbers that I don't have. And I go, I got the same numbers you you have. I got them from the same place. Our government. (laughs) He he got pissed off. Sit down. I've said what I'm going to say and sit down. We never addressed it. And of course, that was one of the things that always got me fighting with them in that briefing room was over immigration, you know, kids in cages and the lack of empathy that they have. It's it, it, that issue to me was just abhorrent. And I think the Biden administration, Donald Trump is still framing that argument. He's still framing that issue. And Biden is still reacting to Donald Trump. And that's got it in. You got to set it straight or or they're going to continue to beat him over the head with that issue. And it's good. I, I warned I, I was on a podcast a couple of months ago and they, I said the immigration issue is going to be a win for Republicans. They're going to bash Democrats over it. Uh, unless Democrats are bold about it, unless Democrats do some reform, unless Democrats do a messaging around it, it's going to hit them. And knowing full well what's happened in this country, usually immigration reform is that 
potato that is punted. It's always punted down the line to appease white for anxiety. At least the last 40 years it has, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 I, and I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the kids being kidnapped because out of the, of the many sins that we've talked about the past four or five years, uh, the horrors, I think one of the worst ones is that this country literally kidnapped kids and separated them from their families and put them in cages. And we have not been able to reunite every single kid with their parent, which if you think about it, means that the United States government has kidnapped and destroyed children for the rest of their lives. It, it breaks my heart. And the thing is, is what they don't realize is they're creating the terrorists of the future. Mm. They are. You think so? You think, you think that you think this is going to go deep to the point where people say, I'm, I'm, done. If, I, I'm radicalized. I, I think it, it aids in radicalization without any doubt. You pull me away. What would, what would happen to you? If you were put away, and I mean, look at the radicalization in the Middle East. Look at mm. radicalization. It's always starts. Where do they, where do they recruit disaffected poor children? And you created that whole underclass by which you can now uh, terrorists can now utilize them. What do you, what else have you got to lose? You're in the Middle East. You're living in a sea container. You got nothing to 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 live for. Mm. And suddenly a radical thought, you know, and, and, a, and someone, hey, strap this to, you know, your family will be fine. You may die. You'll go to heaven. You'll be with a lot of, you know, Vestal Virgins, blah, blah, blah. It's not going to be any different south of the border. Some of and what we have to worry about in this country, south of the border, is the radicalization of those children, not in, as, as um, political terrorists, but as narco terrorists, because mm. where else are they going to make the money? And that's where the money is made in uh, you know Latin and Southern America and and South America and and we have for years there's a great book on it uh, by uh, Smedley Butler who was a, a Brigadier Marine uh, Corps General and in the 30s during the Depression he wrote a book called War Is a Racket and how our foreign policy created the poverty in Latin and South America yeah. and then wh where else are you going to go well where did they go they went to the the gangs that are selling drugs. That's what's going to happen, I think. Yeah, and unless you and, and, and unless you really tackle the violence and the instability uh, and the economic uh, depression in Central America, you won't get a handle on proper Absolutely. immigration reform, right? And so Absolutely. all this is connected. And and, and everyone of my friends who care deeply about this, they think, okay, in the Biden administration, we're finally going to tackle it. But I remain skeptical for the reasons that you mentioned. I don't think they have a good handle on it. I think they're going to punt it. It's going to be punted to 2022. It'll get punted to 2024. And maybe, just maybe in 2028, maybe 2026, we'll deal with it. Sometime but, in my lifetime. Yeah, maybe. But, but right now, I feel like Trump and the Republicans have such a good messaging handle on this uh, of a mess that they helped exacerbate that Biden and Democrats won't touch it. And the fear of offending the anxiety uh, and cultural sensibilities of many white Americans is what's yes. going to keep them from doing the right thing. Last thing before we go to the break, the yeah. uh, what you think of the speech last night, his uh, Joe Biden's first speech to the nation? I tweeted that he should give his speech uh, writer a, a giant raise. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> you know, look, it's it's twofold. If you if you look at it by itself, in the context of the moment that we're living in. It was pretty profound, right? It was like an acknowledgement that we are uh, living in a crisis. It was almost like a wartime speech. Uh, I agree. You know, it was like, we have suffered loss. We have suffered pain. Uh, we have suffered discrimination just for simply being Asian American. Uh, and I need all of you to do the right thing. I kind of imagine how it was in World War II, right? Yeah. We need you, America. Everyone right. has to step up. And it was a wartime effort without using the word war. But what also had was empathy and compassion and concern, with, which is what I've always said. I was critical of Biden, but I said, listen, man, I'll give the man props. He's a good storyteller. He's a man who's gone through pain. And when he sits there like Grandfather Joe and talks to you, it, 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 you, you feel it. You know he's not BSing, right? And that type of uh, paternal, I'm not using that in a negative way, that type of paternal kind of loving, empathetic uh, demeanor and tone that he had was so cathartic and a refreshing breeze compared to the utter lack of empathy uh, that was presented by Donald Trump. Well, and lack of humanity. I mean, I, you could disagree. There were a couple of things that he said during this, his speech that I thought uh, 
I, I loved hearing and I, and, you know, I think I tweeted those out too. It's, you know, I like when he said, it's never a good bet to bet against the American people yeah. that put us all. I mean, that was a subtle way of putting us all in the same boat together. Um, not only, and, and then when he came out and said, Hey, um, I need you. And instead of I, I can solve all your problems. Yeah. He just came out and said, look, I, I need you. And, also, when he said, look, my fellow Americans, you are owed nothing less than the truth. Right. Um, well, it'll be my job to hold him to that. But it was nice that he had admitted that and said that because we have lived with nothing but the foul stench of lies for four mm. years. So I, I give him props on his speech. I, I, like you, have, you know, my doubts about several things, but I think in the moment last night, that was the perfect speech for the moment. Yeah, exactly. And the, the nation needed it. I think the nation yeah. needed it. And it was also and it drove out. Fox crazy. <laughs> you see Tucker Carlson. We're yeah. waiting for Tucker Carlson's reaction. That was so weird. Yeah. I'm like, why am I looking at Tucker's constipated face in the bottom right of the corner? I, I thought he was going to have a coronary. I swear to God, I watched him and I kept going, Jesus, at any moment now, he's just going to bust a blood vessel. He's going to collapse on stage and it'll be over with. Top news isn't that, you know, Biden made the speech, but Tucker Carlson has collapsed in a cerebral hemorrhage. Details yeah. 11. <laughs> and he's, he's going to blame immigrants for that, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but listen, like Democrats need to take the wins when they can. And let's not forget that he did that speech uh, upon the, uh, the heels of signing a one point nine trillion dollar relief package that will help millions of Americans that zero Republicans voted for. So going back to messaging in 2022. I'm telling Democrats, you run on that every single day. Absolutely. I, I, I tweeted, I said, everyone who gets a stimulus package, a check, ought to write to Georgia and thank all the voters in Georgia for making it happen. Thank because, the black leaders of Georgia yeah, for stepping yeah. up. Because otherwise, it wouldn't have passed. It wouldn't have passed. African Americans in Georgia, that would not have happened. And yeah, that, and so, yeah. And so, I mean, we take lists. There's a lot. There's a lot to be cautious about. There's a lot to be cynical about. I share, like with you, many of the doubts. We've been in the trenches for a while. We know how the sausage is made. Uh, we started off with our disappointment uh, when it came to uh, the U.S. response to Jamal Khashoggi's yeah. murder. Uh, but we also should take the wins where we can as well, um, because in the last four or five years, it seems like those wins were few and far in between. But uh, you know, the fact that people will get vaccinated, the fact that deaths have, have reduced. The fact that we might be able to reopen this country, the fact that people will get the stimulus package, uh, those are that's important, man. That you, people need hope. Yeah, I agree. Hope and faith. Take a short break. We'll be right back. Hey, just ask the question, podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q Podcast. That's J-A-T-Q Podcast. Again, that's at J-A-T-Q Podcast. Hi, and we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us today is Waj Ali. And Waj, I guess we're, you know, uh, I, I wanted to ask if you Personally, first of all, as a playwright, what do you like to write? What have you written? So I, I don't know if I'm even allowed to call myself a playwright anymore, but I, I wrote a play, I produced it, and I published it. So my, my friends say you well, are that a, playwright. a playwright. Yeah, yeah. so I, I mean, I, I just got to write another one. It's been a while. So I wrote this play. You know, it's really interesting. I wrote this play. I was 21 years old, uh, a student at UC Berkeley. 9-11 had just happened. I was in, the, in a short story writing class of... Ishmael Reed, a MacArthur genius writer and poet. Yeah. He's a titan of literature, right? And he's black. And he, he said, listen, we've been through this and you, your people are going to get a hazing. But the way we fought back is through art and culture and storytelling. And if you aren't telling your story, someone's, someone's always telling your story for you. And what I see about you and your people is that they're going to call you a terrorist. I don't think you should write a short story. I'm going to take you out of this class. And I think dialogue and characters are your strengths. You should write. You ever read Long day's journey in a night. You ever read Fences? You ever read Death of a Salesman? I said, yeah. He goes, write me something like that. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he's like, you got 20, you got two months to write me 20 pages of the play or you'll fail. Okay, bye. So that's what started. The, and I wrote, I started writing this play about 
three generations of an American family who happened to be Muslim in Pakistani, an elder grandfather, uh, their parents who came here post-1965, and three American-born children. I'm an only child. It's fictional. And they get trapped in the house for one day. Old school kitchen drama. And it's an American family living through the chaos of America, of a post-9-11 America, but told through the lens of a family that's told to go back to where you came from, right? And so it's called The Domestic Crusaders. I wrote it. And everyone told me at that time, no one cares about brown people. The people will not come to see I've them. I've heard that my whole life. Yeah. The I've people, is made, the, the people. by the way, when <clears throat> agents, producers, when they kept saying the people, that was code word for white people. Yeah. that's. I'll, I'll tell you, I, early in my career, I was looking for an agent. And um, I had the very famous New York agent who looked at my, uh, my uh, sizzle reel. And, and he said, look, I really like what you do, but you're going to have to change your, your last name. And I go, why? He goes, well, you would work better, you know, as a minority. So you should probably be like um, Hispanic. Well, you know, like change it to Rodriguez. She speaks Spanish. And I go, well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm Lebanese. <laughs> That's Arab American. And he goes, wrong minority. Nobody cares about you. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I, I got that from almost day one. Either they uh, look at you as being uh, not white and uh, and they don't like you, or, or conveniently, if if it works in their behalf, they'll look at you as white. But they will never acknowledge. When they do acknowledge you as Arab American, they always suspect that somewhere there's a terrorist in your family. And, and I think also with Lebanese Christians in particular, and, and people like you know, like you, like Brian Karam. It's you can pass as white. And once you tell them, hey, I'm actually Lebanese Christian, they're like, oh, but you're not like those Arabs. Yeah. Oh, God, I get that a lot, too. Oh, you're you're one of the good ones. <laughs> yeah, you're one of the good ones. No, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I've and heard then you, that, seriously. Oh, you're you, one of the good ones. And you see and you see how our communities internalize colonialism and internalize whiteness and internalize this this type of toxic narrative that makes us hate ourselves and hate how we look and hate other black and brown people yeah. and say, we're not like them. We're more like you, the whites. And so that's and, what they do. They call you from that's exactly how the rich do it. It's uh, to me, I, I've always thought of it as, you know, they're just calling you from the pack one at a time, one small group, one small group, the one small group. And then that way, when they've got those groups fighting with each other, they still maintain control. Well, that's exactly what's happening with the model minority narrative. Right. And, and yes. for South Asians and Asian Americans, the model minority uh, myth was so damaging because it flattens all of us and it removes all of our challenges it removes all of the hate crimes and the biases and and it says you are the good minority you are the good immigrant why can't the rest be like you and it makes us as enforcers of white supremacy against black people brown people poor people yeah and and so i wanted to you know we were experiencing all this after 9-11 and so i'll be honest with you a lot of south asians and a lot of Arab Americans in particular, those especially who were middle class and upper middle class, thought that they had achieved the American dream, that we weren't like the blacks. We weren't like the Mexicans. We weren't right. the poor. We were good. And overnight, this country reminded them, you're not white. Yeah, you were white when it was convenient for them to have you white. That's that, exactly. But now you're not white. You're, you're like yeah. Osama. You're Saddam. And so that's the play. And I put all of that into the play. And lo and behold, the play got produced. I produced it eventually in New York in 2009. I got it published by McSweeney's. And, and the reason why I just want to end on this is all the people who told me the play would fail and all the people who said that the people wouldn't come and read it and all the people who said that it was worthless, I got word from my publisher that they are deciding to republish the play for the 20th anniversary of 9-11 with a brand new cover, a new introduction, uh, a new conversation between me and Ishmael Reed. And they're the ones who approached me and said that your play, we believe, still resonates. In fact, resonates more deeply now for this generation. So we're going to bring out the play. And so my play that never was that was never given a platform, I had to do everything grassroots because all the major producers and companies said that the people will not come see a play about brown folks. My play is published. My play is still taught in universities. People still want to uh, perform the play. And uh, karma is brown. Yeah. <laughs> brown don't frown, baby. Yeah, brown don't frown. It's, it, you know, it's one of those things. Like have you, you ever seen, a, have you you ever seen a, a, a yeah. play performed? A performance? I have. I have. I did everything. I mean, I, I did everything since it was all grassroots because no one gave me a shot. So I was like the producer. I was like a fill-in 
uh, actor. I was like the assistant director. I did my own press wow. release. I learned all of this by myself because nobody gave us a shot. So my team, we did it. We like, we're like, F it. We'll do it ourselves. And so, and so if you bet on yourself and your story and your communities, uh, you know, there is sometimes a return on investment, especially when you're dealing with, let's be honest, uh, an entire infrastructure, which is colored by white supremacy, uh, both uh, overtly and covertly. Very covertly and very overtly. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, all right. So you're sitting there at the end of the day, you're going to have something to eat and you're going to put on an album. What are you, what are you eating and what are you listening to? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, Depends on the day because there's so much beautiful music out there. You can't just, you can't just go with it to rock and roll. Yeah. What are you going to put on rock and roll? Okay. So I'll Mozart any day, but all right. You want rock and roll? I'll go old school. The first image that popped in my head when he said rock and roll, Chuck Berry. Uh? And and I'll put on the great 28 by Chuck Berry, which is a fantastic CD and record that has all of his classic hits and, and Chuck Berry in his private life, not a person you'd admire, but if you look at, if you look at his legacy without Chuck Berry, there'd be no Clapton. There'd be no Beatles. Right. Uh, this whole British wave, if you actually listen to their early records, they were just trying to imitate Chuck Berry. Well, they uh, always, the Beatles always said Chuck Berry was one of their major influences. That's right. And I'll give you, the, I, I interviewed someone on this show, Daryl Davis, who played with Chuck Berry. Great guy. He's African American guy. He's about six, seven, big guy. He has gone in, he played country for a while, but he's played with Chuck Berry keyboards. And there's a Hail, Hail Rock and Roll. Yeah. Yeah. He said the problem with that song, the reason why didn't people didn't like it is because it got white people and black people uh, dancing together uh, and forgetting that they were white and black. And they mm. and he goes, Chuck wrote it. He said he talked to Chuck Berry and he wrote it specifically for that. And Daryl Davis's story is a civil rights guy. He has talked, I think it's a dozen members of the KKK out of their robes. Oh, oh, I know him. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, I love his story too. He told me the first story and I know where it happened. Uh, the, the little honky tonk where it happened because my bands played there, but, and you, you would probably know it in Frederick. Um, and he said, you know, he, he walked in and he said, why do you hate me? You don't even know me. And sat down and talked to a guy for about two hours. I know his story. It's a remarkable, remarkable story. I forgot that he actually played with Chuck. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, and also, but like you, we, I mean, to connect all the dots with art and culture and how how racism and colonialism and white supremacy affects the rest of us, right? Like, yeah, without Chuck Berry, there, there's no Keith Richards. Without Chuck, there's no yeah. Beatles. Without without Chuck, uh, you know, uh, like the riffs that or we, Led Zeppelin or the Who yeah, or like the yeah. the riffs that are so central to rock and roll music, um, to the to the the music of our of our our parents' generation and even our generation, right? Because everything's connected. Nothing happens yeah. in isolation. You could lead it back to black artists. Like, there's no Elvis Absolutely. without black artists. There's no Elvis. Well, people thought Elvis was black when they heard him and didn't know who he was. His and they first... saw his hips. And yeah. Arabs are like, he's Arab. Look at yeah. his cigars. <laughs> yeah, that's a belly dancer if I ever saw one. <laughs> so what, what are you sitting down to eat? At this? Okay, so, th- so then I'll, I'll make a really strong, tasty cup of chai and I'll cook the milk with it. I'll put uh, two scoops of sugar because it's Chuck Berry. Yeah. And then, and then I'll have some chai and I'll have, um, and I'll, I have Chuck Berry in the background. And what I'll make just because it's, it's Chuck, I'll make... I'll make a spicy chicken curry with three chilies with the red pepper, red pepper, green pepper, and uh, black pepper. And my wife is into that. She loves that. There you go. Yes. Yeah, are the kids there? Are you going to send them out in the backyard for a while? <laughs> the kids the kids are here, but I've sent them to the room to watch cartoons. I'm, like, I'm talking to Brian. <laughs> send them there for the dinner or bring them in for dinner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my, my kids, what's one of those things is my hope and dream is that my kids can eat the spices. My, my, my baby daughter is the most adventurous. My six-year-old son, my four-year-old son have my wife's weak-ass palate, but I'm, I'm hoping... <laughs> Well, she's yeah. better than you. Remember that. Yeah, yeah, she's better than me. But like her palate, man, it's just I'm like, you're, she, she's also a Pakistani descent. I'm like, what's wrong with like all of us are like, what happened to you? Her own, fa- her own parents are like, if you can get my daughter to eat spices, you you will be even more beloved to us as a son-in-law. <laughs> my wife was born on a farm in Mid Missouri, and she likes it as spicy as I 
love it. I love it. <laughs> but you know, I you know if I, if I could connect the dots in in a, in, a, in a meaningful way, we yeah. always, you know how it is. Like remove the spices, remove the merch, remove the masala, both literally and figuratively, from your food, from your culture, from your narratives, from your name. The people won't get it. And what I've seen is once you go authentic and add in the spices and the merch and the masala, both figuratively and literally, the people show up. They appreciate it. Yeah. Because, you know, I, and boy, there's a metaphor there, you know, variety is the spice of life. Yeah. And that's true. I, I mean, you can only eat McDonald's so many fucking You can only eat McDonald's <laughs> once. so many times. <laughs> I, I had to give that shit up. That's like, I can't do that. And I can't do Starbucks anymore, which is the McDonald's of coffee. <laughs> I bet I say I had to I, I I haven't touched fast food in years. I, I yeah, can't. neither I. I can't do it. it. It drives me nuts to even be around fast food, but that's just me. Well, listen, watch. I appreciate you being around. We ran out of time, but I'd love to have you back sometime if you're game. No, man. Thanks so much. Uh, great conversation. Also, this is the first time we've actually ever talked. Yeah, I think we've, we've DM'd and tweeted, but uh, it's the first time. So I appreciate the fact that you were a thorn on the side of the Trump administration. And uh, as you know, as you've said before, the job of the journalist and reporter is to speak truth to power. So when Biden administration F's up and lies, which will be inevitable, uh, I'm counting on you. Uh, I've already been there. I, they were there three hours before I was on them. <laughs> All of three hours. <laughs> they don't, you know, they don't appreciate it, but too damn bad. We can talk more about that later. <laughs> no, man. Thank you. Yeah, thank Thanks you. The name me. of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kerman. Thanks for joining us.